you know, culture is something that you can write down values. I've been to lots of different companies and see in, in lobbies where you might have mission statements or values listed. That's all nice, but values are really what you live and what you act on. You're listening to Lives at Speak, a podcast highlighting the remarkable work of Sidwell Friends School alumni. I'm Brian Garman, the head of school at Sidwell Friends, a pre-K to 12th grade independent Quaker school located in Washington, D.C. In this interview, we sat down with David Fisher, an alumnus from the class of 1990. Currently the chief revenue officer at Facebook, David is responsible for the company's advertising business and manages the sales and marketing teams worldwide. Prior to joining Facebook in 2010, David was the vice president of global online sales and operations at Google and served as the deputy chief of staff of the U.S. Treasury Department and also as an associate editor at U.S. News and World Report, where he covered economics and business from Washington, D.C. In this episode, we discuss the importance of giving a voice to all and the delicate balancing act of nurturing an inclusive organizational culture. Uh, so welcome to David Fisher. David, thank you so much for taking time to be with us this afternoon out of your busy schedule. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be with you. The last time we were together, uh, if you remember, I visited you in San Francisco, and it was really on the eve of the pandemic. Um, and I don't think we had any sense uh, that we, we, we would be in the position now. Not at all. I, I remember sitting there uh, staring, looking out of our office windows over downtown San Francisco on a nice day. And and I think we were making plans about doing a podcast like this, but we couldn't have imagined, I couldn't have imagined uh, just everything that would have ensued over, over these months. So I hope everybody out there is doing as well as possible. And what is, what is a year that I hope we will never repeat? Yeah, it's been a trying time for everyone, a trying time for our community, uh, trying to balance the health of the kids and, um, and their uh, education. And uh, I know that's something that's always on your mind, too, and you've been involved with your children's schools. Uh, how are they doing and how have they uh, fared in this virtual environment? Because I know uh, things were closed down in San Francisco for quite some time and schools are still opening. Right now, they're still remote. And, um, you know, I think the headline is that we're, we're fortunate to everyone be healthy. And, and at this time, you know, we... We can't take that for granted, so and, and we're fortunate that way. I think it's safe to say that uh, we all look forward to being back to life a little more like normal. And I know uh, my 14-year-old son, I think he can't wait. I can't wait for him to be able to go back to school because everything's still remote uh, for him. But, you know, we are we are doing okay, and right now we'll take it. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, we've got to be grateful for what we have. Hey, tell me, you, you came to Sidwell Friends in the ninth grade, isn't that right? It was actually eleventh grade, so 11th. I had only only two years there. Yeah, so very quick. But the, in some ways, the school made an important impact on you. It sure did, and I I have such fond memories of of that time. I think starting just with the friendships that I made, and and some of my closest lifelong friends were from those those two years, my final two years of high school there. I think. You know, the other things that that really opened my eyes to, um, I think one was just moving to D.C. I, I had grown up outside Boston until that point in my life. And just how involved Sidwell is in the world around it and community and how uniquely special it is to be in D.C. So I think part of it was just opening my eyes to the world, the, the broader world, a uh, you know, all of the multicultural aspects. And certainly I remember things that I had never even thought to, thought of doing beforehand, going and protesting with classmates outside the South African embassy, uh, for example, uh, against apartheid and things like that. That So I think just opening the world to the issues out there and, and in a world in which, you know, I certainly had a lot of privilege in my life and, and I don't think I'd recognized it in particular before coming, I think that was that was something that that was incredibly valuable. Yeah, and I remember um, we now that uh, you mentioned coming in eleventh grade. I think you were at Latin, right? Uh, while you were up at uh, uh, Roxbury Latin School, right? That's right. That's the school yeah. I went to for four years in Boston. So some distinctions between those schools, right? Roxbury, another very uh, very fine school. 
Um, and certainly uh, that was, had an impact on your thinking and your experience. What else are the big influences that you would say uh, you encountered as a young person? Well, I think one that I'd pick up there is, you know, that was that was a boys' school. But again, I, I was so fortunate to go to two outstanding uh, schools between Sidwell Friends and Roxbury Latin. You know, one of the things that I was there from seventh to tenth uh, grade before my family moved to Washington, and I grew up in a in a nice uh, suburb of Boston, relatively homogenous. And one of the things that Roxbury Latin really opened my eyes to in a in a way that took some time to see was they do an outstanding job there in terms of building a really diverse student body both in terms of uh, racially socioeconomically and but as a i think i was 12 years old when i started there i didn't know what that was or didn't think about it i just knew i had a bunch of classmates and i came in not knowing any of them and then over the course of studying, being in class, being on the playing fields, uh, you just start to realize, you know, these are your friends, these are your classmates. And then at some point along the way, when you start going to people's houses or just comparing notes on life, you start to realize, oh, you know, there's a lot more, people are coming from a lot more different, a lot of different places. And, and so I actually think that, that grounding, and then of course, coming to, to Sidwell Friends in Washington, DC and, uh, and, and continuing that education, I think that and the values that come out of that, of just this sense of understanding we're coming from different places and, and you know, this sense of privilege, which we now talk so much about then. I don't know that I had words for it, but I think it gave me some understanding of that. And that's really informed, I think, a lot of what I've gone on to do and certainly the values that I hold and the way that I want to live my life and hopefully raise my kids. Uh, when we were in San Francisco uh, together, you were about to be the keynote at a diversity event that Facebook was holding. I was. And, um, you know, I've been involved uh, for my decade at the company. I've actually been the executive sponsor of the the Black Ad Group, which is our employee resource group for Black employees. And which, if you see a photo of me, you will, you will note that I'm not the obvious choice uh, for that. But I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've carried forward from those early formative experiences that I talked about is an appreciation and understanding uh, of how important uh, diversity is. And I think, you know, important now we talk so much about diversity and inclusion, but understanding what the experience uh, is like for people other than, than myself and, and even, you know, this journey, certainly these last couple of years and a lot of terrible, uh, events, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, unfortunately, you know, we could go on, right. uh, too long on that. But I think the, you know, what I am hopeful about, even in the midst of such a, a trying time is just the increase in understanding. I know for me, this is part of a journey and it's a lifelong journey, but the chance to, to, grow myself and share those experiences. And I think as a society, as a country, certainly we as a company are working hard just to frankly give voice to those, help help people understand it. Because it's usually, frankly, people who look a lot more like me than uh, than necessarily, uh, in this case, you know, our black employees who really need to make the investment to understanding. But too often, frankly, uh, we as a society can can turn to the group that's that, that we are challenging, that we may be oppressing and asking them to help solve it. And so, you know, I, I view that as something, part of my role is to try to play an important role, but also give voice to realities like what I just said. So the social justice component is important to it, but Facebook also has uh, an interest in it from a, a DEI perspective, uh, I would guess, in terms of the quality of thinking that emerges uh, in the organization. So what, what's the business proposition uh, in your uh, estimation around um, equity and inclusion in a, in a corporation like Facebook. Well, look, one of the things that uh, is is a great privilege, but one that we take seriously and need to is we serve three billion people right now around the world uh, in terms of who use Facebook or other platforms, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, and. So with a company of over 50,000 employees, that's a big company, but compared to the community of people that we serve, that's very small. And so we need to understand 
the different needs, just where different people are coming from. And so that's one important basis. And a second one related, but different is just in terms of the way we run the company and decision-making. There's so much research on this. Hopefully it's well enough understood, though I fear it's not always. It's just that in terms of having the best the best thinking, the best decision-making, I know for the team I work most closely with that uh, that we usually make best decisions when when there are ideas other than mine. Put it a different way, I know that if if it all came down to me making those decisions, I'd get it right sometimes, I'd get it wrong sometimes. But when we have the collective wisdom and opinions and importantly, a debate process leading up to those decisions that bring in a lot of different backgrounds, experiences, and that includes uh, any number of factors in terms of where people grew up, how they grew up, uh, economic status, uh, racial background, we make better decisions. And, and those things play out in, in so many different ways. So I think that, like the case, the rationale for this is so strong in so many different dimensions. The challenge often comes in, in executing and doing well and creating a diverse workforce, to diverse communities. And then that inclusion piece of, of one where everybody can connect, but also people can come and, and feel feel at home in that environment mm-hmm. and be set up to do their best work. You know, in the case of our company, that's something we focus on as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do you manage uh, in what has become a really polarized political environment in this sense? How does that complicate these efforts? This is a, a challenge that I think we're all living with right now we're recording this two and a half weeks before the u.s election and obviously this is this is an important factor in this country and around the world and i think you know that that struggle of wanting to talk about the types of issues that that we just that we've been talking about these last few minutes brian but also what i just said which is part of part of running an inclusive community inclusive workplace is making sure that everyone can come to work and be their best selves and do their best work. And I know one of the pieces of feedback we hear sometimes from, uh, from our black community. And again, just in my role as an executive sponsor of that group, I, I spend a disproportionate amount of time with them, but it's certainly, I think it's equally true for uh, our LGBTQ or uh, Latinx community or you name it is that sometimes people want to come and debate a lot of, the issues that are going on in our country or in the world right now. And that's important. We are, after all, uh, a company that is, that is folk and has, has as our mission to build communities and bring people closer together. And that includes discussing difficult issues. The challenge can be that sometimes that can make it really hard to come in and work. And uh, if, if you come in and, and, you know, you log into our, workplace, which is our internal version of Facebook, and you come and you have people saying things sometimes or expressing political views that, you know, let's, let's be honest, a lot of people may hold, but that frankly may come across to a lot of people as, as gaslighting or just as attacks. It can be hard to then just say, okay, now I'm going to sit down for a few hours and do some important work. And so there's a real tension there. And we feel that at the company, we feel it as a society right now. And I do think dialogue and just being honest and open about what's going on is an important part of figuring out how do we move forward effectively and together. And that's, that's easier said than done right now. What, what are, what sort of ethical framework do you try to develop as a leader uh, around these particular issues? Um, one, and then, and then how, how does Facebook, if, if you're able to talk about that, think about this from an ethical standpoint in the way, uh, Right, you're you're balancing perhaps on one hand free speech, and then what does it mean to be a civil society? Um, how, how do you think about that tension? There's there's an inherent tension, exactly. I'm glad you used that word because I think it's so important, and it's certainly true in our work and our mission and our values. And I think that's true in almost anything that. Uh, that we do, you know, someone, we were having a discussion the other day just about our company culture in light of some of these issues and how, you know, we want people to come and express themselves, but some of the ways that people want to express themselves are frankly counterproductive to, uh, to creating kind of inclusive culture. And so, you know, as much of, as what you 
do and what you reward, there's also what you don't reward or what you don't allow. You know, so that's that comes into play. But let me step back because I think you're asking the bigger question about about principles. And you know, we start with our mission and standing for voice. You mentioned free speech. You know, we ultimately are on the side and believe that giving people more voice, more chance to express themselves is important, is valuable, and is a force for good. But at the same time, we know and we've seen far too often that that alone isn't enough. And I think part of our journey as a company these these last many years has been about how do we strike that right balance between we want to encourage speech and there's times that 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 means that things that I find objectionable, you might find objectionable. Certainly a lot of my friends and family members I hear from find objectionable. Enabling that uh, in the name of letting different people come and express and debate but where do we draw the line? And we're seeing that right now in, in this current environment, certainly with this election. It's a, it's a hotly contested discussion and, and debate. And so uh, I, I think that's, you know, there is that tension. And I think being explicit about that tension is important. And so, you know, we've we've said very clearly that that in standing for giving people voice, that's going to mean that there's going to be some voice that that some may find objectionable. I think what is important and and something that continues to evolve is then being clear about where do you draw the lines on objectionable. Uh, that's a really provocative response. Thank thank you for that. I, I, um, I'm interested in this line drawing though, right? Because we all have to do it, right? Um, and and this conversation is taking place on college campuses. Uh, it, it moves into education, as you've made very clear, it moves into the workplace. What is the line? Like, how do you think about that as a leader? And how does Facebook think about that issue that this is just this is too objectionable? And here is the line. Well, look, it's an evolving process. And that's part of what's really difficult about this. I think, you know, we've drawn the line at content that might incite violence or might be hateful. Yeah. Right. But part of the what's challenging about that is there are vastly different definitions in the world of what that might look like. And just, just recently we banned Holocaust denial uh, on the site. And that's something that, I mean, it's contentious and has been contentious internally and externally. I'm, I'm Jewish and it, it pains me to see that content pains me to think that anyone either believes that or maybe doesn't believe it, but wants to express those views. You know, in that case, I think, where if you think about that as a free speech issue of just saying, look, people should be able to express objectionable things, you can, that that's, you know, that's how you can come at that. And we did and, and, and took that, took a position to enable it. And then, but I think as you uh, see more research and just realize, you know, never mind in Germany or other parts of the world here in the U S new research and surveys that suggest that more and more young people in this country aren't aware of the Holocaust or aren't sure exactly what happened. You realize it goes from maybe a, an expression or a debate about uh, views to a actual uh, realization that people may not even understand this, or you may actually be playing a role in amplifying uh, things that people are going to believe as facts. And, and that is, that underlies part of this decision. But I think as you can probably appreciate it, that if you're going to apply that in uh, to billions of people around the world and billions of conflicts, millions of conflicts, however many there are in disagreements or political debates, you name it, it, it's, it's a hard standard to uphold. So that's, you know, we come at it with a set of principles around harm, around violence, around speech. But, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's one where there's always going to be some gray area. And we have an extraordinary team of people who does that work, but it also means that the hard decisions they make turn out to be really, really hard. Yeah. And it's also a, a testament to the fact that uh, there is more and needs to be more gray in the world, perhaps, uh, than just black and white. I, look, I just I think that statement alone, just appreciating where other people are coming from, not so much on on you know factual issues, but on opinions. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that, and it is it is discouraging. I you know during my time after. After college, I worked in D.C. for six years and, and uh, as a journalist and then in government. And I, I love 
Washington and, and, uh, and I have a strong appreciation for our government. It used to really upset me when <clears throat> people would be so cynical and, uh, or just down on, on Washington or on our government. But, you know, I, having been away from Washington now for quite some time, I, I see and, and hear more of that. And it's certainly the feeling of polarization and division and yes, yeah, seeing things in black and white. It's, you know, am I for this or against this? And that leads to, am I, are, uh, are we on the same team or different teams? And and that's hard to see and disappointing to see. And I hope it's something that we as a society can do better at. And frankly, that we as a company and as a, as a platform can be part of a solution towards. Yeah. And you make an important distinction between um, something that is factually based, right? Like the Holocaust versus something that is, uh, uh, you know, an opinion, right? That's, a, that's an important, I think, distinction that Facebook has made. Uh, and it, it's not surprising, though, is it that that right? This is an evolutionary uh, uh, or a, a, a moving target, in effect, right? I mean, one of the things that uh, about social media is the speed with which it moves, right? And um, uh, you really must have, in the early days, kind of found yourself making it up as you go along. Certainly, to some extent, there there is an element of that. I mean, one of the things that really struck me when I left Washington in 2000 and had been working in the treasury department for three years before I left and came out to Silicon Valley and started working a couple of years later at, at Google was just how different the mindsets were of, I would say, leaders and sort of the, the, the organisms as a whole, if you, if you want to take DC and, and Silicon Valley as organisms. And, you know, what I, what I saw and continue to see in, in Washington is just a risk aversion and a sense of mistakes were so costly because they would be used against you politically, whether or not there are big mistakes. And there's some issues, by the way, that in, in the world and certainly that uh, that our government manages that, that need to be managed uh, very cautiously. But there are others where sometimes a small mistake, you know, you can maybe maybe used to to bludgeon you politically in in ways that uh that I think are unfair and damaging and coming out to silicon valley and just realizing there was much more tolerance for mistakes and and this philosophy that look if you made a mistake can you learn from it and can you do better next time you know realizing that there was much more openness to that i think that's part of what has brought forth so much innovation now mm. i think an obvious then follow up or a response that I can imagine people may have in their heads to that is, okay, but you know maybe can't that you have too much of a good thing, and I think we've certainly seen that we as a company and and I think technology as an industry as our as our scale has grown as our our impact in the world has grown, we've also had to adjust and I think maybe adjust that dial of risk tolerance, particularly in some of the areas that that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's appropriate. I think, you know, the challenge in all of this is it's a learning process and you have to, you have to adjust. So yeah, I continue to think that, uh, that I would love to see things uh, maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit more risk tolerance in Washington in, in some ways. And, you know, we need to continue to make the adjustments we're making out on, on this side of the country as well. So you see, um, examples where the technology uh, offends, but there's also uh, places where the technology enables important change. Can you share uh, an example where Facebook was used in a particular way that brought about some change that you're particularly proud of? Oh, sure. I, I think that's you know that's one of the things that's so rewarding about being in this space and and being at this company. You know, just uh, earlier this morning, I was on the phone with uh, an entrepreneur in Brooklyn named Stasha Harris, who is an immigrant from Trinidad and started up, she's in, um, in the uh, hair care space and, and she runs a couple of salons in Brooklyn. And particularly she uh, serves a black clientele and does hair weaving. And so she was just telling me the story of how she had to shut down her salons, you know, when COVID hit and she didn't really know what to do. She had a bunch of employees and she basically figured out by going online and she's done a lot on Instagram. Uh, she's been able to actually build a, a related but different business. Um, 
and um, and continue to employ people. And I get to hear stories like that throughout the world of entrepreneurs. You know, there's uh, a woman I met a couple of years ago in Indonesia who started a, a clothing company and her parents, not even in their house, in their hallway, basically, and now employs something like 80 people. And she started when I think she was 17. And, you know, it's fundamentally changed her family, changed her community. You know, I, I'm telling these stories because I work uh, in the business side of things at right. Facebook, but you could say the same things about people and finding voice and connecting. And, um, you know, we see this in some is social unrest. You always worry about one side of violence. On the other hand, in terms of uh, giving people the power to speak up and uh, raise issues that, you know, maybe in the face of oppressive governments or other, uh, other difficult situations like that. So there's countless examples where you see the power of technology to enable people to connect, to give people more power. And that's incredibly rewarding. And I think that is part of, you know, when I talk about the power of innovation and, and risk-taking to create new tools and put them in the hands of people. Uh, and in some ways, you know, you have a thesis, you have a sense of where it's going to go, but then lots of unexpected things happen, be it the way that people are going to respond to the COVID crisis. And you suddenly realize uh, what what you might do in response. I mean, we as a company have pretty fundamentally altered our plans, the things we are building, the new tools and systems in the face of of this pandemic. So 2020, as we come towards the end of it, looks so fundamentally different than than everything we plan to do. But you know, we've built so many tools for small businesses. We've created grant programs to help. Uh, businesses and nonprofits, uh, two $100 million grant programs to help people who are affected by this. And so that, you know, that flexibility and agility that, that also I think is, is part of a hallmark of technology companies proves to be really valuable and, and, and frankly, rewarding and fun if, if you're in a place where you can act on it. Hmm. Let's go backwards a little bit. You were talk, you mentioned your time at treasury. Uh, what was your role there? I had a, a variety of roles, but my final, uh, the final year and a half or so, I was the deputy chief of staff, which just was a fascinating experience to have at that point. Then what, what was enjoyable about um, that work? You know, this was the late 90s. And so um, it meant that a lot of the big issues that Treasury was dealing with at the time were uh, a series of global financial crises in which uh, we saw you know, fortunately at the time it wasn't in the U.S., but it, it, it looks, you know, in some ways like things we've seen, seen several times since then, but where we're seeing a lot of economies in parts of Asia, parts of Latin America, parts of the world go through really difficult times. And it meant that the role of treasury, if we could help those countries help stand up a strong response that could stabilize their economies, that had a huge impact on people's lives. So, so just realizing the really important role that governments could play both for people in your own country and around the world. Uh, and, you know, that was one learning. A second was just the quality of people in government. It's why it drives me crazy when, when you hear, uh, frankly, so many people bad-mouthing government. Government, there's, there's a lot of things it can do better. We talked about some of them earlier in this conversation, but, uh, but you know the quality quality of people um, and working hard on behalf of the American people. So I, I had a fantastic experience. I'm a, a huge believer in our government and in, in government service. Um, and it also, frankly, exposed me having the chance to interact with a number of businesses and entrepreneurs to a lot of what I didn't know. And I think that was what motivated me to want to come out to Silicon Valley to the West Coast uh, and understand more, it was clear that, you know, there was this fundamental change happening in the country, in the world, being driven by technology and the disruption that was creating and wanting to understand that. So I came out here. I don't know that I knew I would, would have been here 20 years uh, by now, but it uh, it was certainly something that that piqued my interest and, and made me want to take a leap and come on out here. And so you moved to Google, right? When you first go to Silicon Valley, right? Yeah, I actually came out and went to business school out here at Stanford for a couple of years because I thought I knew that I was excited about it. I knew there were some a bunch of things that uh, that I hadn't yet learned and wanted to have a chance to to learn. And yeah, and then I ended up going to Google in two thousand two. 
you know, those uh, Sidwell folks who go to uh, Stanford never come back, it seems, from uh, the West Coast. <laughs> a, fr- a friend, when, when moved out here, said as a warning, they said, you know, it's the Bermuda Triangle out there. People go and you never hear from them again. And yeah. uh, I think that's what, what he meant by it. Yeah, yeah. What I'm in, one of the things I'm interested in, too, is you, you move into that culture and, and you use the word culture earlier in the conversation when you were contrasting Washington, D.C. with Silicon Valley. You have worked for two firms that have uh, very uh, distinctive cultures. And, and what, what have you learned from those cultures other than the need um, for uh, risk taking, which you described earlier? What are the other takeaways that um, we, should, we should learn about from uh, Silicon Valley? Well, one important uh, principle that I that that infuses the culture at both companies is just the idea of um, is the idea that that anyone can have a good idea, and frankly, the a big part of building the company successfully is hiring extraordinary people and then setting them up to be able to actually have ideas, to run with those ideas and to be successful. And, you know, they've, I've certainly seen plenty of cultures and corporate environments that are very hierarchical where the expectation is there's a org chart and at the top is one person and, you know, things kind of flow from there and, you know, those can work in their way, but I think it's so much, uh, it's so much more powerful when you think about, the role I, I, to the extent that I ever have to put org charts in slides or show them, which fortunately isn't that often, but I always like to stand them upside down and and have the the you know people with the biggest titles at the bottom because I really think if you think about a service environment where you think about your job, I mean I think about my job is to set up the people that we have around the world working with. Uh, we have we work with over 180 million businesses who are currently on on. Facebook or other platforms, and you know, think about how do we serve them well, and that means setting up our teams, um, be it you know, be they in, in Jakarta or uh, or in, in Warsaw, to be able to do that job successfully. And so I think, you know, we have a lot of flexibility and give people that risk taking nature that I mentioned means that you know you can tell people, okay, if you have a good idea, you can run with it. Now you got to put some constraints in place. But uh, that is one that, that is really important. I think more broadly, I would also just mention about culture. You know, culture is something that you can write down values. I've been to lots of different companies and see in, in lobbies where you might have mission statements or values listed. That's all nice, but values are really what you live and what you act on. And so I think, you know, a culture really has to be something that's, that's owned and maintained by employees. But it's the way that you behave, the way you treat one another what sort of behavior you reward and what sort of behavior you punish. Uh, and again, punish sounds like a really harsh word, but the point is you're going to, if you, if you say that you want to be a collaborative culture, but then you tolerate people who may be a really strong performer, but just a terrible colleague and, uh, and really hard to work with or worse still, or, or actually um, make it harder for other people to be successful, then you're not really living your culture. Then that, you know, then you have to call BS at some point on that. And I think, understanding and thinking about what you're building and what trade-offs you're willing to make. You know, in that case, it might be saying, hey, we have a great performer, but you know what, this isn't the right place for you because you can't work effectively and we're trying to build a place that's really based on a collaborative environment. I'm a huge believer that that having the right culture and building that and working at it, because it's not just building it, you have to maintain it as an organization changes, as society around us changes. You have to work to actually maintain and keep it up. There are a lot of Quaker principles in what you're describing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I didn't know when I, when I came out to Sidwell, when I was, I think it was 15, I didn't know much at all uh, about any of this. And certainly I remember meeting for worship and, and sort of just sitting there and wonder the first few times. But I think that notion of, of giving everyone voice and listening and understanding and, and valuing people uh, are also important. I'll tell you a related but slightly different anecdote that, that I think about sometimes when people ask me what 
uh, about the Sidwell experience is I had a, a teacher for calculus uh, who was, I think it was Richard Brady was his name, uh, who happened to be Quaker. And I'd always enjoyed math, been pretty good at math. And, and I was used to, you come in, a teacher stands at in front of, well, they were blackboards at the time, whiteboard, teaches you some concepts, you do some exercises and you move on to the next thing. And I remember coming to this class and, and it was completely turned upside down. You know, he said, we're going to work on this area. And that meant sit and read the book and struggle with some problems and struggle with it some more and eventually come up and, you know, I remember going up and asking for his help. And sometimes he'd guide me and sometimes he'd kind of give me a comment and send me back to learn more. But that, that, that sense of empowerment and respect, but also, you know, you have to take ownership and control and, and learn for yourself. And it, I found, frankly, found it a little mystifying and at times frustrating, but I look back at that with a lot of appreciation and thinking about, you know, how you want to set people up to learn and to behave and to act. Mm -hmm. Richard has uh, just completed a book manuscript um, and uh, I think he's got a, a contract actually. So um, we'll have to make sure you get a copy of that. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was a very, uh, very deep thinker. Very deep thinker. You, you mentioned that 15-year-old that showed up at Sidwell Friends. What would you tell that 15-year-old now if you could give him some advice looking back? <laughs> um, oh, man, that's a long list of things. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a huge believer. I, I say I've been fortunate in life in so many ways. And so, you know, I don't know that I'd ever go back and change things, but there's so many things I've learned along the way. And I think that, you know, the mistakes, the learning is part of the, part of the journey. I actually was fortunate enough to, uh, to give a commencement address at Sidwell back in 2014. And, and I actually built it around trying to think about what were just a few of the lessons that I would share with, with myself back when I was sitting in Zartman Garden, uh, in, in 1990. And so the three things that I pointed to then, um, well, actually, we was sort of touched on on all three of them already. But the first was about you know finding your voice and speaking your truth. You know, part of that came from a place where, as a kid, I think you know I I was pretty easily intimidated and maybe a little bit shy. And I remember going out in in the world, be it in college and in uh, in large lectures or when I was in a work environment where I had ideas or thoughts, but maybe I was a little intimidated and didn't want to speak up or assume someone else knew better. And you realize there's a lot of good people out there trying a lot of things. And maybe sometimes you'll say something and it wasn't the best thing to say, but more often than not, speaking up and acting, uh, you have a strong voice, you have things uh, that are worth hearing and saying. And so, you know, the first thing was just don't be afraid of, of speaking up and particularly speaking your truth when you see things go in a certain direction and there seems to be conventional wisdom or in some case, just bad behavior, you know, try to find your voice and speak up. The second was about failure. And we've talked a lot about that, but not fearing it and making sure that you're taking enough risk and understanding that a, a successful life is going to entail making some mistakes and, and figuring out to learn how to learn from those, but not let them, not let them uh, freeze you. And the third one, which is really the way that, uh, that I think about the way I make a lot of decisions in life is around always be learning to seek opportunities where you have a chance to learn, you know, the decisions I've made about where, what to do professionally all really have to do with being environments where you can be learning Now, you want to be contributing as well. Obviously that's an important part of it, but I find it incredibly motivating uh, and feel like I'm at my best when I'm, you know, bringing something to the table, but also facing some new challenges and know that, that I have to grow to, to perform. And I think that's just true in a job. It's in true in life. And if it's not, that's probably a time to, to make a change. And I think embracing that, that, that feeling and, and uh, knowing that, that if you're not feeling like you're learning, you know, maybe it is time to think about something else. Mm -hmm. So those are three things that, uh, that, that I would certainly look back and, and, and share with, with my younger self. So let's think a little bit about um, parenting, which is a really tough job. And uh, it hasn't become any easier over the last. No, it sure hasn't. Right. I mean, it's a, it, it, being a parent now is harder, I think, than ever. And, and part of what makes parenting difficult in, in these 
time uh, is also technology, right? Um, and and parents are constantly looking for advice on how much should my child be online? How much should my child be using social media? How much should I be monitoring my child? How do you think about that? What advice would you give our parents? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's tough to be a parent. I mean, I say this as I can hear my one-year-old daughter squealing out there uh, <laughs> a few uh, next room over. Um, and it's tough to be a kid. I mean, that's that's the other part of it. So I think it's tough all around and on a bunch of fronts. And technology is part of that. I mean, I think on some level, the big issues are the same. And in some ways, it's different. And some of that has to do with, with the speed and, and uh, scale at which things can happen uh, with technology. I mean, you know, let's face it, I, I loved my time at Sidwell, but there was... There's certainly plenty of examples of, of things that I wouldn't wish that, you know, I saw in some cases uh, was a part of that, you know, I'm, I, I don't take any pride in, I'm embarrassed about, or, or that I would, you know, tell my children, I, you know, ways that I wouldn't want them to behave. And so I think that activity and bullying has been around forever, but the rate at which things can spread uh, is really challenging. So I think, look, it starts with with a couple of things, it starts with values. Uh, and as parents, that's always been important. It starts with communication uh, as much as possible. And, you know, one of the things for me that, uh, that as a parent that I've, I've worked at and struggled with and hopefully made some progress with is, you know, trying to meet my kids where they are. Uh, you know, it's, it's always easy if it's a frame of mind or interests that are the same as, what I like or what I liked when I was a kid, but you know, <laughs> the reality is, is, is sometimes that'll happen. And sometimes uh, I find my kids are just interested in really different things than what I was interested in. And so trying to understand and meet them where they are and have an appreciation. And then look, I think when it comes down maybe to the more tactical level of, of what do you let your kids do or not do is, is, you know, I, I think in all things you want some limits, especially for kids. And so, um, you know, I, what I try to approach is one, understand what's going on. I think it's a parent's job to do that. And, uh, and that includes, you know, what, what activities your kids are getting up to and what they're doing online and then try to be a, a, a place, uh, and a source of support and strength, sometimes judgment, but sometimes not judgment, because I think as much as anything, it's also, you know, things are happening quickly and, you know, I can't keep up with all of it, but if, if you know that you can be a place where a part of solution, you know, that's, that's really important. So I think, look, I, I think every household should have a set of rules and policies and that, that should include, I know some people who, whose kids don't spend any time on technology or screens and some people who, whose kids spend a good amount of time. And I'm not here to say one is right or wrong, but I think, having a structure around it and then some outlets and ways to, to govern and then to make sure when problems arise, because problems are going to arise in any of those scenarios that you have a way to tackle it and to be there and to be supportive. Those are the things that, that I would encourage people to think about. Yeah. Kids may tell us they don't want limits, but they do. They need them. <laughs> those are some of the hardest conversations as parents. And I agree with you. Yeah. I know I needed a few myself. Uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for those. Uh, this has been such a, a difficult time that has elapsed since you and I last saw each other. What are the lessons you take away from the COVID era to date? Well, I think what, some of what I try to look to are some of the inspiring pieces. And, you know, a lot of the areas that that we thought might be the worst hit um, have also been some of the source of the, of the greatest innovation. There's, you know, again, depending what you're looking at, but certainly uh, in technology and in, in the use of technology by, you know, I'll pick businesses again, because that's where I spend most of my professional time. I would guess that we've accelerated five years in a matter of months. Now, a bunch of that was out of necessity, but if you look at a lot of local businesses, I just think about, the restaurants or dry cleaners or other businesses just here in my neighborhood in Palo Alto that I frequent, you know, 
we could have had discussions. I've had discussions in my in my role at Facebook or just talking to friends over, I don't know, the last five, 10 years about, do you need a digital strategy? What should your digital strategy be? Sometimes those were nice to have conversations. Those are vital conversations now. And, you know, unfortunately, some businesses we've seen not make it sometimes. And oftentimes that was just because of what's happened and there wasn't much anyone could do. But in other cases, we've seen people rise to the occasion. I mentioned the example uh, of Stasha Harris, the the hairdresser in Brooklyn earlier. And people try things. And I I do think that that one's ability to to, pivot is such an overused word, but I do think it's right, is, is to change direction and try, uh, try something new that when you have to do it, you find you can do it. When you don't have to do it, it's easy to make a lot of excuses for one not to do. So I, I do think, you know, that's a takeaway of jumping into things a little bit more, a little bit more aggressively, um, going forward. I think the other thing that I would really point to is just how important connections are in ways that you know maybe we take for granted. If you think about um, how much time you know, we at this point, I, I'm so tired of looking at myself on you know whatever video platform, be it be it Zoom or whatever you might use. Right. You know that background of me standing here at my desk for seven months now. You know, I get I get tired of it, but but let's not forget just how much energy we get and certainly I get from connecting with friends and particularly in the early months of this, when we, in our household, we were in full lockdown. I mean, we weren't going anywhere. We weren't taking anything in, anyone in, you know, so it was just us, but that ability to actually catch up with friends from throughout my lifetime and family members. And it's, it is uh, amazing as much as, as I hate this and can't wait for it to be over, you know, members in my class, uh, from my Sidwell class, uh, led by a number of people and, and my friend Gretchen Kolsky has, has really been pushing that have been, uh, doing virtual meeting for worships on some weekends. And I, in fact, it's actually picking up pace and happening more often now than it, than it did a few months ago. And, and I think remembering that and how important connections are and, and making sure that we build, build time for that. Because I think one thing that probably none of us want as much as we want to go back to life and, you know, the things we love. And, you know, in my case, that means travel and getting to go places and connect with people who I've been missing. We each have our own version of that, but I hope we won't leave behind some of those really important lessons about, you know, making sure we're prioritizing the things that matter about uh, the people and the connections uh, and the values that, that, that are going to make a difference uh, in, in sort of when we look back on our lives. Mm-hmm. So, so there's certainly been a lot of parent anxiety that has emerged out of COVID, particularly in relation to um, education, which is, is completely understandable. How do you think about that? And how do you think about um, what some folks see as lost opportunities in this moment? To me, this is one of the hardest issues that we've faced and that people have faced. And I think particularly that, uh, that younger people have faced. And I, I am once both proud and worried for this environment. You know, I, I had parent-teacher meetings for my 14-year-old son who's in ninth grade uh, yesterday and got to connect with his teachers. And I know that not being in school face-to-face is hard for him in a bunch of ways he's expressed. I can see it's hard for him in ways that, frankly, I'm not sure that he has expressed uh, but I can see it in some of its anxiety, some of its just distance and, and failure to connect. But I also see, you know, I was really proud to hear a lot of the, the feedback from, from the teachers. And so I really think about just trying to hold both those things of recognize there's so much about this that, uh, that, that we wouldn't wish for and that we hope will end. But, you know, there's, there's still opportunities to make the best of it and, and, if not to thrive, to at least succeed. And I think, you know, for me, and even in the way that I'm parenting, I'm trying to see both of those things um, and, and make sure that I recognize and speak to them. And, and in this case, you know, reward and praise the, the good when you see it, even as I try to be really uh, empathetic to the challenges. You used a 
wonderful phrase earlier um, when you were talking about being in the mountains. It, you find the optimism to move forward. We're in a difficult period in our history in, in so many ways. Uh, you know, certainly uh, you and I are, are close in age, and I don't think we've ever seen the kind of global challenges in so many areas uh, that are so clearly pronounced in any moment such as this. Where do you find the optimism to move forward now? You know, I, I think I see it right now, even in the way so many people are responding to this crisis, so many of just the amazing ways, starting with, you know, frontline workers and the, and the way that, that people have rallied. Look, I agree with, with your framing of, of the question, Brian. I am... I don't know that I ever would have believed putting aside COVID just as a, as a society, as a nation, as a world that, that we would be as polarized and in as bad a place as I think we are. But at the same time, my experiences have uh, shown me time and again, that there are outstanding people who want to do good and do the right thing. I don't claim to have a, a blueprint or an answer. How do we shake society out to bring together people who too much of the time seem more interested than making sure the other side loses than trying to help everyone win. But I also have an optimism that we will get there. And, you know, the way I try to think about it is what steps can I take? Uh, what help, what things can I facilitate that will at least take us steps in a positive direction because you know, this year has also taught us don't be fooled into thinking you can see the future or that, you know, you know what lies ahead, even even if it seems clear to you. And so I'm hopeful that just as just as we can have a year that where so many things go so much worse than we might have dreamed, that we will have times ahead where the opposite will true will be true. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about people. And I think there's so many just amazing people uh, who come at life, you know, wanting to help one another and, and make a positive impact in the world. And, you know, maybe that's a nice way to circle back. Cause I think that's, you know, that's what I said was one of the things that struck me most about my time at Sidwell was, was just sort of seeing that and the impact that people can have and a focus on the world around you. And so that's, you know, where I come away from this with a, a sense of, you know, I'm certainly have plenty of trepidation, but I continue to be optimistic. <laughs> I don't know what the path is, but, you know, I know I want to take steps towards and whatever what I think is the right direction and hope that a society will get there and, and I hope we'll get there soon. Yeah. David, thanks for your optimism and your wisdom and your thoughtfulness and for being with us today. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian, so much for having me. And, and I enjoyed it. And I just uh, want to send my best to everybody out there in the civil community and, and hope everybody is doing as well as possible right now. Thanks, David. Same to you.